is Emily, and for our second Bible reading, it will be from John 1, verse 1 to 18. You can find this on your pew Bibles on page 1,109. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was, not, was made through him, he, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received the one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, uh, Emily, for reading and Brian for praying. It is uh, wonderful to uh, be together as the people of God, where we get to sit under the word of God each week. And we have to remember the spiritual significance of that as we hear the Bible read and taught. We are, in fact, hearing God speak. So let's pray once again that God will be speaking to us now. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on these words, these profound words from John 1, that you'll be speaking to us, help us to see what we're meant to see, convict our hearts, and conform our ways that we might be doing your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our friends, the school year has started, which means time for study again. So the Year 7s who are joining us now, excited about study? No, not very excited. Happy about study? Well, we all study all the time, right? Well, let me tell you who will be happy. The parents will be happy during this time school started again. Uh, but we do study all the time. We're always learning in our life. But the one most important study that any one of us can ever do throughout our whole life is to study God, is to contemplate God. And that is because when we come to know God, we come to know the truth. And when we come to know God, we in fact also come to know ourselves, our purpose, our significance, and also our future. That comes from knowing God. In 1855, a young preacher at 20 years of age, Spurgeon, in a chapel in London, 
He said this as he was reflecting on this. He said, There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. They're profound words, aren't they? As we think about God, we are humbled. How can our finite minds cope with the infinite God? And at 20 years of age, I remember when I was 20, I wasn't doing anything impressive like this, but he was preaching and he, was, he said this, he goes on to say, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. And that's why in the medieval universities, it was theology, the study of God, that was called the queen of the sciences. That was the top study you can do to study God, and that makes sense. How can our mind cope with understanding God? But that is what we'll be embarking on today as we consider the Gospel of John, as we begin the Gospel of John, trying to grapple and cope with our finite minds, the infinite God, it will expand our minds, it will enlarge our souls as we consider the Gospel of John. And so let's have a look. John chapter 1. Do keep your Bibles open. John chapter 1. We begin here with the Word, the divine Word. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, what does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means that at the very beginning, all the way into eternity, whenever that was, we weren't around. But who was? Only God. Only this Word of God. And so what that should already do for us is that it should humble us. It means that this whole created order does not revolve around us, it revolves around God. Now what about this word? Well, we read that this word was with God. Now, that means that this word is distinct from God, God's own fellow. But yet at the same time, we read this word was God. Do you see how it's sort of expanding our mind already? That this word was God's own self. And so that's giving us an insight into the mystery of God himself. The, the Trinity, we see two persons of the Trinity, God and his word. Now do you see how even that thought, just that verse, it's already starting to stretch our minds. How can we grapple with understanding God? How can our finite minds grapple with trying to understand the infinite God? Now of course we know that this word of God refers to Jesus Christ. But why was he described as the Word of God? Why did John decide to use the Word to describe Jesus? Why didn't he say here, to make it easier for us, in the beginning was Jesus? Or in the beginning was the Son of God? Or in the beginning was the Messiah? Why not use that, make it easier for us? Why did he use the word, Word? Well, it is because by speaking, God reveals himself and John is making a point that that is how God reveals himself, by speaking. It is the means by which God makes himself known. 
And if we reflect on the Old Testament, how God has related and interacted with this world, how do we see his power? How do we see his saving power? It is by speaking. And so right at the very beginning, Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. He spoke and there was light, which means the word was there with God, but also God. Or in Isaiah, God says, my words will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. What does that show? That shows the power of God. The word is his agent in bringing about what he says. And so the word of God is God's own self-disclosure, God's self-expression. How do you know God? Well, God speaks. How do we know anything about God? God speaks. And that's why Jesus is described here by John as the word of God. He's helping us see that to know God, it's not a matter of us searching around doing our own research, making our own discoveries. That's not how you find God. The only way you find God is up to God himself, who speaks and makes himself known. Which, if you think about it, it's how any one of us comes to know each other. It's how any one of us comes to make friends in the first place. How, how do you make friends? How do you meet someone and know someone deeply and truly? How does that happen? How do you come to know me even? How, how do you get to know me? How do I get to know you? Well, what you require, what I require for us to know each other deeply, well, we can spend time together. We can go out to the movies. We can eat together. You get to know what I like to eat, what I like to watch. You can search me up on the internet. That's a way to find out about me. After a few pages, you'll find a picture of me. I'm there. You might know a little bit about me, but how do you actually know someone deeply? You might even come to live with us for a while. But if I remain silent in all of that, you don't know very much about me. And I won't know very much about you if you remain silent. You see, for anyone to know each other, for anyone to become friends, what is required is that I disclose myself to you. I express myself to you. I speak. I make myself vulnerable, expose my heart. And that is what John is saying here. This word of God is the means by which we know anything about God. It is up to God. He chooses to speak, and that's how we come to know him. But more than just being there at the very beginning, what do we now read? What do we now learn about this word of God? Well, we learn that this is the life-giving word of God. That is, Jesus is the source of all life. It's giving us a cosmic view of the entire creation, of the entire universe. From the furthest flung stars in the galaxy, to all the planets in our solar system, to the mountain ranges of the Himalayas, to the vast ocean that covers our Earth, to every grain of sand. What we now see is that they exist because they were created by this word of God. God spoke it into existence. Look at verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You can't get any clearer than that. It's meant to expand our minds. Everything was created by the word of God. Which means you are here and I am here you are alive, I'm alive, because of Jesus. 
because we were created, because he gave us life. Now, if he made us, what do you think that means? If Jesus is our creator, well, what it means is that he owns us. If I make something, I own it. God made us, he owns us, which also means we are accountable to him. Whether we feel it or not, whether we like it or not, we are owned by God. He made us, he owns us. He's the king, he's the Lord, and he's God. But do you see, when we do start to think about God in these ways, as God has revealed himself, we are actually also learning about ourselves because what do you learn about yourself when you know that God is the creator? What you learn, what we learn, is that we are not in the centre of the universe. We're not in the centre of the world. What we do learn is our proper place in this world as creatures of God. We can't think too highly of ourselves or too lowly. But now in John we read something so profound. God enters into his own creation. That is mind-boggling. The creator into his creation. The life-giver meets those whom he has given life to. And John the Baptist, we read, he testifies this word of God, the one who made us, he is coming. Look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so what do you do when God chooses to enter into his creation? I mean, even that idea is just mind-boggling. How can the creator come into a world he made? He's in a different realm. It's like an author finding himself as a character in his own story. I mean, the only way that's possible is if he writes himself into his own story. But that is what God has done. That is what the Word of God has done. And so what do you do when God chooses to enter into his own creation? Well, what do you do when royalty comes, when some member of the royal family visits? Well, last year, Prince Harry, Duchess Megan came to Australia. What was the type of reception they received? It was warm. It was welcoming. They were welcomed with open arms. They stayed at the government house. They stayed with the governor general. They were well cared for. They were served. The prime minister was at their service. The premiers came to meet them. They were important people, and important people treated them well. That's what you would expect if you're a member of a royal family. Now, what would you expect, or how would you expect, the world to treat God when he comes? Not a member of the royal family, but God, the creator. Well, you expect with open arms. The one who made us has come to be with us. But what do we see here? We see a great display of ugly defiance and rebellion against God. Look at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now how tragic is that? This is not just another person. This is the creator, rejected by the very people he made. Try to reflect on that a bit to let that sink in a little bit. Imagine Prince Harry arriving into Australia, but Australia turning him back. Go back, we don't welcome you. We don't want you here. This 
is worse than that. Or imagine lifelong friends who turn their backs on each other. That would be tragic. But this is worse than that. The creature rejecting the creator. Or imagine a, a son who will not acknowledge his father. That would be so sad and devastating. But what we see here is worse than that. The creature denying their creator. And why? Well, it's described here. John uses these motifs of light and darkness, and they, became, they become themes throughout the Gospel of John. They hold moral value. And so later in John 3, we read, Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. And doesn't that just describe the reality of our world today? How many of the things that we see are evil, but yet people not only affirm it, they approve of it as okay. But then we read on, of course that's not everyone. There will be some who will receive him, who will recognize this man is my king, this man is my God, this man is the one who has given me life. And what will happen to them? Well, they will be given the greatest privilege ever. The privilege that belongs to every single Christian. They, out of everyone, can call God Father, Daddy. Now one day, in the royal family, Prince William, he'll become king. There'll be all proper protocols. You can't just call him mate or buddy, even if you're a good friend. Everyone will have to call him Your Majesty. Even his brother will have to call him that. I mean, imagine your sibling calling you Your Majesty. But in all, amongst all the people in the world, there will be three who will be able to call him Daddy, Father, only his own children. But do you see what we read here? That is the privilege for those of us who believe in God. That is the privilege for those who believe in Jesus. They will be given the right. That is the word authority. They will be given the authority to call God Father. Look at verses 12 and 13 now. Yet to all who received him... To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God, adopted into the family of God. This is profound. The Creator, the Lord of the universe, the Holy One, will want us to be a part of his family, not just a creature of his creation, but a member of his family. God speaks. And now he also welcomes. But we have to think about how is this all possible? How can ordinary people just like you and me come to be with God, come to know God? How can anyone come near the holy God and live? It is profound. How is that at all possible? Because when we read the Old Testament, when God comes near people, it is always deadly terrifying. People die. People are afraid when God comes near because he's so holy and people are so sinful. And so how can anyone face God and live? I mean, Jacob, he had this little encounter with God, but he was left limping for the rest of his life. The angel of God brought death when he came to Egypt. Or the pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire. Imagine that sight when God comes near. It is frightening. It is terrifying. Or even in our first reading, when Moses, he wanted to see the glory of God, but God said, you can't see my face or you will die. 
even Moses. And so Moses, he did want to see the glory of God. And what did God allow? God said, you can't see everything. It will kill you. And so what God did, he placed him in a cleft. He only got a little glimpse of the trailing edge of the glory of God after God had passed him by and covered his eyes. But even that was too much because his face was left glowing. The people couldn't be near Moses because God was not that powerful. And when the glory of God descended on the tabernacle, they all stayed away. You see, from, for God to come near this world, this people, any people, it is deadly frightening. And so how is it at all possible that God can be near us and for us to be near God and to know God and not die in an instant? How is it at all possible for God to enter this world and for not the whole world to just die? Well, what God did was out of grace, out of kindness and out of his initiative. He made himself vulnerable. God the Son took on human flesh, became a man, became like one of us, so that we won't be destroyed in an instant. I mean, just get your head around that for a moment. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, he, he said, Our God contracted to a span. How is that at all possible? This is the infinite God. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. It is so profound. C.S. Lewis, a brilliant author and one with a brilliant mind, he, he tried to get us to imagine this, how profound, how shocking that would be. He, he gave this story, an analogy. Some of you like pets, uh, pet lovers. Now, for those of you who like dogs or cats or birds or guinea pigs, if you love your pet so much, would you, for the sake of your pet, Become like one of them. Leave your life as a human being. Bark like a dog. Meow like a cat. So that you would know your pet better. So that they would know you better. That would be so shocking. Who would do such a thing? I mean, I'm not a pet lover, but I would never become an animal for a pet and leave my life as a human being. It is shocking. But look at what we read here. Look at verse 14. The word that is the eternal word, became flesh. This is the incarnation. This is God taking on flesh. Athanasius, one of the church fathers, he describes this as not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking manhood into God. And so verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He had to become flesh, otherwise we would die. He made, he became flesh, made his dwelling among us, which is the Old Testament language of God dwelling with his people, tenting with his people. Now, what happened when God appeared? When the word of God appeared in flesh? Well, we read on, you see the glory of God. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He only got a little glimpse. But to see Jesus is to see the glory of God, to see the character of God, full of grace and truth. And that's what we read, verse 14 still. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came for us. In his Son, Jesus Christ, 
One poet writes it like it's like the hound of heaven coming for us. Jesus became flesh and descended to us. And why? This is so that we can know God. The most important study anyone can do is to know God, the one who made us. Jesus makes this possible. He became vulnerable so that we can truly, deeply, genuinely know God, the one who made us and loves us. And so verse 18, we read, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so as we study the Gospel of John, we are to be reminded of this. The words of Jesus we hear are the very words of God. The acts of Jesus we see are the very acts of God. To see Jesus is to see God. And to know Jesus is to know God. Jesus makes the invisible God visible to us. He came in the flesh so that we won't die. Now why is all this so important? It's a profound chapter, John chapter 1. So deep and rich in theology. But why is it so important? Well, firstly, it's important because this is dangerously confronting for every soul in this world. Jesus came into this creation, took on flesh, became a man. We can't just read that like it's just a novelty. Isn't that an interesting thing? No, he came and he confronts us. It's not just a story we hear and read of and, wow, isn't that interesting? No, this is confronting and dangerously confronting for every single soul. It means that your life and my life, it means that your future and my future and the future of every soul in this world who have ever lived hangs on how they respond to Jesus. God has come in the flesh and he confronts us. He leaves us with a choice. I have come. I am your maker. I am your life giver. I'm the source of all love. I'm the source of all hope. Will you receive me or reject me? Will you remain in darkness or will you come into the light? And so when Jesus came, he confronts this world. He confronts every single individual. You can't stay in the middle. You're for him or against him. And no one can ever claim, well, God doesn't exist. He is God and he came. No one can ever use that excuse before God. No one can ever claim, I can't find God. You can't use that excuse anymore. He came, made himself known in his son. No one can ever claim, well, I can't understand God. Well, he came as a man. You can understand him. And so he confronts this world, he confronts all of us and says, will you receive me or reject me? Now for those of you who have been coming for a while and you're still exploring Christianity, it is so good that you are. But this question confronts you as well. We can't stay in the middle. No one can stay in the middle. Is he Lord or is he not? Is he king or is he not? The coming of Jesus is dangerously confronting. It divides this entire world into light and darkness. Those who are of the children of God and those who are not. But yet at the same time, this passage is also wonderfully comforting. You see, there is 
No way at all, if we were left to our own devices, as brilliant our mind could be, as intelligent we might become, as advanced we might become, as religious we might even try to be, there is no way we can know God. There is no way we can ever discover God. If God, who is infinite in power, lives outside the created order, we can't just go to space and see if God is there. It won't happen that way. And that's why this is so wonderfully comforting, because we don't have to. We don't have to. There's no need for us to find God. He has come to us already in his son, Jesus Christ, as a man. He came and became utterly vulnerable. God would become a man and could even bleed and die for us. He came so that we can truly and genuinely and deeply know the God who made us. And that is comforting. You see, the God we know, the God you know, and the God you know for many decades for some of you, the God you love and know, well, that is the true God. You can take comfort in that. You know the one true God. And Jesus came to give those who believe in him the right, the privilege to call God Father. Not just to know God as king, more than that. Not just to know God as friend, more than that. But to know God as father. It is wonderfully comforting, the assurance of this passage. Today, God is my father. Tomorrow, I'll wake up, God is my father. When I'm old and frail, God remains my father. And even when I die, I finally enter into my father's presence. It is wonderfully comforting. Dangerously confronting, but wonderfully comforting. It's the most important study anyone can do to engage our minds with the infinite God to come to know him. And in Christ, it is now possible. And so do you know God personally, deeply, truly? And that wonderful hymn again from Charles Wesley, Our God Contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man, and he was made man for us, that we might know God. Amen. Let's pray.